Hello, and welcome to Making of a Historian, one grad student's quest to raise a kid, finish a dissertation, teach a class, and eventually, maybe, improbably, to get an actual job. This spring, we are doing a season on work and play in the Industrial Revolution, which is roughly following the class that I'm teaching uh, this semester of the very same name. Um, this is episode three. If you haven't listened to the other two episodes, well, you probably aren't missing out on a ton. It's not like there's characters or anything. It's all thematic. So, But just if you like it, you can go back two episodes and hear the start of the show where I talk a little bit about the motivation for the class and the general roadmap of things as they are. This episode, we will be continuing to talk about the Industrial Revolution itself, particularly you know, one of the most profound changes that happened in it to human beings, the change to our experience of work and time. You know, it's a weird thing to think about time being different over time, that people in the past had a different experience of their lives going through time than we do. But it's one of those those kind of vertiginous realizations that you have as a historian that the things that you think are universal and natural and like true forever are actually not, that they're the result of historical processes, that they that they have a history. And our experience of ourselves in time is, as historians say, historically contingent. It's not just baked into what a human being is. It, it, it differs. And you can see this through like doing an inventory of your own life. I mean, I, I remember throughout my life having like really different uh, relationships to time and different periods of my life. Like, you know, my, my, my first memory is, is during summer vacations as a kid when you didn't have to go to school and you had all this leisure and you'd sit around eating Cocoa Puffs in the middle of the day and playing and watching TV. And, and time just felt so much bigger. It felt like an eternity. Whereas with school, like you were under pressure, you could never do what you wanted. And you know, that just shows that that even in our childhoods, our experiences as people growing up, we have different rhythms of time at our disposal. I'm reminded of one of my favorite books, The Magic Mountain um, by Thomas Mann, which is about a guy in a tuberculosis sanatorium. It's it's not as boring as it sounds. It's, it's really quite fantastic. And, and the main character uh, who may or may not have TB is, is laying out on a veranda in the in the sweet Swiss Alps looking out across the, the icy landscape and he's thinking and he's thinking about time and he's a little bored and he says that being bored is being a glutton for time. You waste time the way that a glutton wastes food. And it's interesting to think of the opposite of that, that, that part of being a person in the flatlands, in the modern world of work and modernity, the, the, the place that this character Hans Kastorp is, is fleeing from, to be a person in our world is not to be a glutton for time, to have a diet of time, to be disciplined about time. And that discipline is, is probably the result of the Industrial Revolution. Now, I, before we get into what that actually is, I'm just going to do a little sidebar here and, and, and say, although we used to think 
that this new relationship of time was the result of new forms of 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 productive technology like factories making people have to work like machines it's become increasingly clear that what's actually likely the case is that the people changed first or at least a lot of people in in northwestern europe changed first that they started to have a different appreciation of their own time they started to work more on their own time rather than play more. Uh, this is this is what Jan de Vries calls the industrious revolution. So it's probably not that machines changed us to be more like machines, but that we first became more like machines and then machines became possible. So when I talk about this change, I now, I now want to actually get into the, the details of it. There's two really big ways that our relationship with time changed in the Industrial Revolution. One is about uh, what the anthropologists might call circular time, and the other is about how we experience time in our daily lives. So first, let, let's talk about circular time. This is our experience of time as a repeating thing that happens over and over again to us. Our experience of, of, of ritual, of regularity, our experience of, 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 of the annual cycles of things. Now, during the Industrial Revolution, we've talked about this before on this on this series. One of the big things that 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 happened was that people's lives stopped being as deeply connected with seasonal changes. This was a result of of, of a number of developments. Uh, uh, this was due to the fact that you had cheaper heating and cheaper lighting, which meant that people could stay inside for longer doing work. This was huge. People had cheaper lighting because uh, in Britain especially, and also in the Netherlands, coal and peat and other forms of heating were really cheap, which let people stay inside in the winter and warm up their delicate little hands, which allowed them to work during the winter when it was dark out and cold. You couldn't really do much craft industry in your house before you had cheap heat because it would be, you know, too cold. You can't make pots or 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 sew things or paint things or, or or really do anything if your hands are frozen in the middle of a northern European winter. The other aspect of this is cheap lighting. Um, in one part, this is because people started to work in factories, which were really big concentrations of people, which made the price of lighting per person decrease because you had a lot more people in a single room. But there were also new forms of fuel for lights. Uh, in the 19th century, there was uh, particularly coal gas, which was a byproduct of, of heating coal. You could collect the gas and then run it through pipes, and these pipes would then illuminate and, and made cheap, nice, bright, smokeless light for people. But there were a whole branch of different kinds of, of new fuel in the 19th century that made light itself cheaper, kerosene, whale oil, and so on. And this cheaper heating and cheaper lighting meant that people could kind of huddle inside and ignore the weather outside in order to work. Now, when they worked, they were also increasingly able to get power that did not depend upon the seasons. Before the 19th century, although you did have some uh, steam-powered plants, most factories were run with water. And a lot of these factories were run really cheaply. The energy from water was, was, was really cheap. The problem was, was that the energy from water depended 
on the flows of natural systems that were irregular. If you had a, a nice textile factory in Scotland, say, well, you might have a lot of water power during the spring and summer when there was runoff from the icy uh, mountains. And then you could run your factory and make your textiles and get rich. But when it came time for the winter, all of that water would freeze up and your energy sources would be gone. With coal, with this fossilized energy of coal, people could break out of the constraints of, 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 of the natural cycles. And another way that people were able to break out of local fixed uh, uh, resource economies was the growing British Empire. This allowed people to get raw materials from outside of their local catchment area, often from places where it was a lot easier to grow stuff than it was in Britain. One of the leading sectors of the Industrial Revolution, the, 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 the industry that people like me think about a lot, was the cotton industry, which is weird when you think about it because cotton does not grow in Britain. What was important about Britain was that it had the factories to make the cotton into things. The cotton was grown in the British Empire and in places that the British Empire traded with, particularly the American South. So all of these things meant that the way that people worked was increasingly uh, you know, disconnected from seasonal changes. And this meant that there was a slow decline in the kinds of celebrations that people had celebrating those seasonal changes. But even though this, this, this change in circular time was really big, I think that the biggest change was on the actual level of how people experience time day to day. This has been characterized as, as a change from task orientation to time orientation. And, and, and when I start to explain this, it'll click with you because what I'm describing is the shift to the way that we think that our work time should be organized today. So before the Industrial Revolution, if I'm, I'm going to make like a big you know, caricature here, but before that, you did stuff on your own time. If you were a craftsperson or a farmer and you had, you know, some control over your labor, what you would do is you would have a task that you would need to do. You would need to sew, you know, a hundred lace doilies, or you would need to farm a particular patch of earth, or you would need to, you know, make a clock or, or write a dissertation, and you would know when that thing would be roughly due. And how you would work would be in a boom-bust uh, way. Uh, E.P. Thompson, uh, the, the, one of the authors that we're reading for this week, says that you can find this orientation towards work in any place today where people have control over their own time. He says artists, students, and writers. What you would, will do is that you might slack off and party and get drunk and laze about in the beginning of the week when the uh, deadlines are not looming. And then in the end of the week, you might work for, you know, 10 hours, 12 hours, 14 hours. You might pull an all-nighter. It's It might be how you yourself worked in undergrad. This is the craft labor cycle. But in the new labor regime, you don't have a task orientation to work. Instead, what you do is you sell your time to someone else. 
instead of working how you want throughout the week and maybe working a different number of hours, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, instead, you sell a certain portion of each Monday, a certain portion of each Tuesday, a certain portion of each Wednesday, a certain portion of each Friday, and so on, to your employer. And that time is not yours. That time is theirs. That becomes work. Everything else is yours. It becomes play. It becomes leisure. It becomes relaxation. Now, the problem with this, you know, orientation to time is that it takes a certain kind of mentality for it to work. You know, for one, a person who follows this, this, this attitude towards work needs to know what time it is so that they can show up to work on time. And they also need to know what time it is so they can leave. And so they can coordinate with other people in this new time-bounded world. They can't rely on the natural cycles of the seasons to really map out what they need to do. Before this kind of work, you might say, hey, I'll meet up with you when, uh, you know, when it gets sunny in the field or something. Because the things that you might be doing with people would be, you know, would matter more about the way that things were outside than the abstract time that you know it is on your wrist watch. And so instead of needing to know what abstract time it is, you would just look out and say, hey, it's sunny in the field and you go out and work there. Now, time became something abstract. People needed tools to know what time it is. They needed to listen to a church tower ringing the time, or even better yet, they needed pocket watches that would have the time on them so they could coordinate with one another. And so they needed Pocket watches were expensive things at the time. They, I call them, you know, the Apple uh, earbuds of the of the 18th century. A lot of people had them, but they were very expensive. If you got a windfall, you might buy a pocket watch. So this is one part of the new time mentality. People need to know what time it is and care at all times of the year, even when it's dark out. And, you know, if you've lived in Britain before, you know how deeply unnatural this is. When it gets really dark, really, really early, and it barely has any sun during the day, it is tough to leave the house and go to work. It is tough like nothing I've ever experienced in my entire life, just trudging off to your office at seven in the morning when it's pitch black outside. But this happened. And that's part of the change that we're explaining. The other thing that needs to change in, on the level of mentality is that people need to be willing to work hard for someone else, which doesn't really make sense if you think about it. Like, why would I work super hard in a factory when I get paid the exact same amount, whether I work hard or not? I mean, maybe you can be fired. But it takes something else to really get people en masse to agree to this kind of factory system where they work really hard in a factory. Of course, there's exploitation and, and, and pressure. You know, there's there's foremen and there's uh, uh, who are bossing around people working. There's economic pressure, but there's also an internal pressure, a change in mentality that people think it is good to work hard for long periods of time. This is, you know, the Puritan work ethic that we often talk about. And there's also a change in why people work. I mean, they work, you know, in part for otherworldly reasons, uh, you know, for for because work is good and redemptive because it gives discipline, which is a way of 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 changing your orientation of the world, but you also work for wages. 
You also spend all of that time in the factory because you want to get money to do particular things, and you want regular wages. You don't want money just to accomplish a particular task. A lot of times when people are building factories in places without time work discipline, what they complain about is, hey, look, people come and work for us, but as soon as they save up a certain amount of money to you know, buy a house or to you know, buy a new pair of clothes, they just leave. What you need for a factory to work well is you need people to want to come back day after day, week after week, year after year. And to get that, you need them to want money regularly. You want them to think of money not as a thing that just solves particular problems in their lives, but as something that they rely on for their long-term livelihoods. This sounds basic to us. Of course, we think of money is necessary for life. You know, I have a baby. I think about it all the time. I'm like, my God, how am I going to make enough money regularly to make sure the baby doesn't starve? But this is new. Before the Industrial Revolution, you might not need wage work to, so, you know, to fill every single want that you had throughout the year. Now, we can actually see some of this shift in time discipline and, 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 and time orientation in data. Um, there is a, a great uh, essay and book by uh, Hans Joachim Voth uh, where he makes time reconstructions of people in the 18th century by looking at uh, police reports, basically. Um, and what he discovers is that in the, you know, between the middle of the 18th century and the end, people worked about the same number of hours per day when they worked. It's maybe uh, 12, 14 hours. You'd start work at eight or something and work at eight and maybe later on either end. What changed was that towards the end of the 18th century, people worked more days. They had more working days. And this increased the number of hours worked quite dramatically. The days that changed were the traditional weekend days of Saturday and Monday. Whereas before, craftspeople would take off Saturday and or Monday to have, you know, their little days of partying, often called Saint Monday, where they get drunk and get hung over and have lots of fun. Towards the end, they would only have Sunday off. This was also combined with a cramping down on a number of weird holidays. But the big headline thing is that although people worked the same number of hours per day, they just had fewer vacations. Now, what, what's striking to me, what I think is really important, is that this describes the labor regime that we have today. With, you know, some exceptions, we think that we should work eight hours a day, uh, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, and that we should have some period of, of that time for vacations. Depending on where you live, it's a, it's a different amount of time, maybe two weeks a year, maybe a month. But the, during the time that we work, we give our all to the place that we work. Th this, is, this is what feels natural to us. This is the labor regime that I grew up thinking I was going to enter. But what is interesting to me, what, what, what's, what, what's, what's so striking, right now we are seeing this industrial time discipline being joined by, in some ways, older kinds of time discipline. And this is different for different classes of people. For professionals like me, 
we have a kind of modern mixing of work life and home life that is more reminiscent of, of the way that people worked back in, in, in pre-industrial times. So although we still go to offices and we're still kind of expected to be at work nine to five, it's understood that the mental and creative labor that professionals do can take place anywhere. They're no longer bounded by the office. And this is because of technology. We have our phones everywhere. We have our computers everywhere. We can take our work everywhere. We no longer need to go to the office to be around the people we work with and to get the mental and you know creative resources that we need to do our work. And so we kind of take our work everywhere. Many companies offer unlimited vacation time or or really large vacation time. A lot of companies offer new kinds of flex work where you're expected to work from home sometimes, which is great. You know, if you go around the Bay Area, if you drive in the Bay Area on a Friday, uh, it's not really that busy because I think so many people are working from home. And at the same time, the experience of work has stopped being as confined temporally and spatially. You know, this this industrial time discipline has the idea that we work only during a certain time in a certain place, but now our work never ends. I can still remember the first time that I got a work email outside of work. It felt like a violation. It felt like somebody was like, you know, stealing something from me. I was on my way back home from work. It was rush hour. I'd been working, you know, 12 hours and my boss emailed me and was like, you did this wrong and you need to come back and do it right again. And I thought that that was unusual, that it would, that it would, it would not be the norm. And yet it is now. Now, what we do in professional work is we're expected to always be on. And on the other hand, there's another class of people who have a, 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 a new old uh, approach to time discipline. In some ways, they're putting back, being put back on a task work basis uh, through modern surveillance techniques. This is the gig economy. When you think about Uber or uh, Postmates or, or, or any of these gig economy apps, what they're really doing is they're just shifting from the, uh, you know, the, the uh, time orientation of work to a task orientation of work. What they're doing is they're taking the new forms of surveillance that you can uh, use cell phones uh, 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 to put people under, and they're training it to make new co- uh, old kinds of labor uh, broken up into tasks that can be easily surveilled. So instead of just working for a particular amount of time, what these new apps allow people to do is they allow their their tasks to be measured and verified, and so they can be paid by the task, not by the hour. What concerns me about these two new old orientations to work, the professional uh, orientation where you are kind of always working and, 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 and the uh, uh, uberification of work, on the other hand, where your work is broken down into discrete tasks that they're then paid for uh, uh, piece by piece, is that we don't have any kind of cultural defenses for this kind of work. We don't have the kinds of norms that that other people used to defend themselves against the demand of their work. 
you know, before with 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 the 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 industrial work orientation, people would have a set of collective holidays that they could use to at least sometimes uh, say stop. We're not going to work anymore. They would have, you know, moral economies that would determine what appropriate work times were. But now for both kinds of work, we it's kind of like the, the, the brakes are off. We're expected to always be working, um, to never stop. I mean, I mean today I'm... I'm <laughs> I am going to record this podcast. I'm going to go back and grade some papers. I'm going to do some reading. I'm going to write my dissertation. My, my work will not end until I go to sleep. And you're likely the same way. And I think that it's helpful to keep in mind the changes that brought us this industrial time orientation that we kind of think is given as our culture is undergoing a new change in how we experience work time. My hope is that we can, you know, use our cultural resources to fight back and claim some more time for ourselves and for our families, to be lazy a little bit more, to have more St. Mondays. Maybe not. Uh, thank you very much for listening to this episode of Making of Historian. If you like the show, rate and review us on iTunes, share us on social media, go to our webpage at historian.com live and see our show notes, which often contain images that always contain reading references uh, that take you to a special Amazon page where if you buy a book, I get a tiny slice of that book. Um, if you like the show, you can also tell your in-laws or your family friends or an old person who takes the subway uh, that you also take. Uh, thank you always to the people who share the show and to Duncan Barton, who made our image, and to Jonathan Lear, who made our music. Next week, we will be back and we will be talking about a section of workers in the Industrial Revolution we don't often talk about. We're going to be talking about the crafts and also the professions. Speak to you then. Mm-hmm.